Hi, everyone. Welcome to your new life blend. I'm Shoshana Hecht, your host, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dory Clark. Dory has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. And she really is one of the best. She was named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50. She is a best-selling author of four books. She teaches executive education at Duke University. She is an extremely sought-after keynote speaker and consultant, and she writes frequently for the Harvard Business Review. If you're starting to understand why I was so excited to have Dory on a podcast about defining your own life, well, there's more. Dory is also a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a producer of a multiple Grammy-winning jazz album, a Broadway investor, and a musical theater writer with several original musicals in development. Does Dory ever contain multitudes? And I'm so excited to talk with her about how she integrates it all into a life of her own design. Welcome to the show, Dory. Shoshana, I'm so glad to be speaking with you. Thanks. I'm so glad to be speaking with you also. So let's get into it. Reinvention. You are the expert. I'd love to hear how you bring that to the people you work with and support and also how you bring it to your own life and what that means for you and what's important about it. I came to reinvention the way that I think a lot of people do, which is that I was forced into it. Some people come to reinvention because they have this lingering feeling inside them like, oh, maybe there's more. Maybe there's something different. I should try something. And that can feel difficult, but it is this gently rising awareness that something needs to be done. And then there's this whole other class of involuntary reinventors where it's like, here, figure it out. And so I was very much in that reluctant category because very early in my career, I had my first job as a newspaper reporter and I was laid off on Monday, September 10th, 2001, which is a fairly inauspicious time to be laid off because I began my job search on a day when really no one wanted to talk to me about a job. And I was just thrown headlong into the realization that, oh, this thing that I had thought of as a safe job was not, in fact, safe. And it really set me down the path of understanding that, all right, reinvention, whether we like it or not, is probably a necessary element of how we have to be in the world. I did not know that. That's incredible. I'm sort of surprised that the job that had let you go didn't say, wait a minute, we need you. We actually like could use some more help right now. Seriously, obviously, like everybody, I felt so horrible and traumatized on September 11th. But my one glimmer of feeling okay was just the schadenfreude that I had that I'm like, you know what? I bet these stupid assholes wish that they had kept me a few Mm -hmm. more days. (laughs) Uh Totally. I am with you. I'm sure that's right. I have been both of those people, the like involuntary have to figure something out like that. And also there's something more here for me. They're both really interesting and difficult. I almost think they'll throw you in the water. You have no choice but to make it work is almost, I don't want to say easier because I don't want to minimize something that's really, really hard. But when things are going well and easy and you're good at it, but you have this like, oh, I feel this percolating, like there could be something more that makes you have to go out of your comfort zone. I almost feel like that's a little harder moment to find reinvention and to figure out what's going to work for your life. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. I write pretty often for the Harvard Business Review, and I've done a number of articles about essentially this topic. I recently had one come out about how to do a career change when you can't really afford to take a pay cut. And this is one of the biggest problems that I hear. There's plenty of people that would like to try something new, but there's a lot of people that get themselves into golden handcuff situations. And this is not a judgment. It's not like, oh, yeah, you're just out there sipping margaritas and driving your Bentley. People have kids. They have tuition. 
tradition. They have things that are very legitimately important to them. But nonetheless, it has set up conditions in which you really can't afford not to be doing the thing that you're doing. Because almost inevitably, if you are making some kind of a pivot, at least for a little while, there's a period of adjustment where you're not going to make the same amount of money. If you're doing something different, you just don't have the same level of connections or you don't have the same level of experience. You might get to it. You might even get to it relatively fast because you're, you know, a person who has built up skills. You now have the capacity to know how to do those things. But it's asking a lot for you to imagine that like, oh, yeah, that'll be instant. And so that understandably holds a lot of people back where they're just like, I literally can't afford to do this thing that I want to do. And it's a very hard and vexing situation for many people. One of the messages, though, that I try to really get through is that it is possible to make most changes that you want to make. Probably, you know, probably not all, but it's possible to make most of the changes you want. But what we need to get real about is that the timeline might be much more extended than you envision. I am a huge fan of longer runways. If you create a long runway for yourself, you literally can do almost anything. Title of your last book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Yeah, exactly. Bestseller. Maybe you can speak to that, some of the lessons that you're talking about or the tools to help people make this kind of pretty scary transition because nothing's for sure. And then when you're going to make less money to do it, it's pretty intimidating. In a lot of ways, the language we use around career change or reinvention or finding something new is not very helpful. I can see that for some people it might feel empowering. One of the famous books is, you know, leap and the net will appear. But for a lot of rational people, you hear that and you're like, what the fuck? That's it. How do I know? <laughs> Who says? Who says that's going to happen? And so they don't do it at all because they assume that an inherent part is the leaping, is the sort of bungee jump. I'm a fairly risk averse person. I don't like the idea of taking that leap into the uncertain. I would like to have a little bit more data, please. Actually, a story that I keep coming back to is one that I share in my first book, which was called Reinventing You. It's about this woman named Patricia Fripp. And I find this so interesting and so emblematic. When I first came to be aware of her for years, she had been a very successful paid professional speaker. And that was just how I knew her. So I was really stunned to discover that earlier in her career, she had been a hairdresser. That was her background. I'm like, how do you go from being a hairdresser to being this successful paid public speaker? But it turned out that what she had done was literally she had given herself a 10-year runway. She was interested in public speaking. She discovered this because she started presenting at hair shows. Literally, she's doing like a demo about the hair technique or whatever. And she's like, I like this. This is great. Eventually, she started broadening her topics above and beyond hair-specific topics to ones that would be a broader interest to business owners. She started connecting with her clients, her hair clients, and they thought she was really great. And so they invited her to speak to their teams. And so literally over this multi-year process, at first, she's not making very much money. They're giving her a little tiny honorarium. But everything she earned, she reinvested in her business. And eventually she's got a website. OK, now she's got a promotional video. Now she's got some materials. Now she's invested in some training and all these things. She had a 10-year lease on her hair salon. And her goal, and this is literally what she did, is that over the 10-year arc, she ended up slow shifting the balance and tipping the scales so that by the end of the 10 years, she was earning more from her speaking business than she was as a hairdresser. And so she didn't renew the lease. She handed in her keys. She walked away and she didn't have to take any leap whatsoever because by the time she had closed out that chapter of her life, she was already completely set. She was able to saunter into her new career with no disruptions. 
brilliant. I'm with you 100%. Like, leap what? What are you talking about? I mean, I really believe in tiny changes over time, small steps over time, compound into massive change. That makes me think about the whole 10 years in the making overnight success idea. People are doing the work, taking the steps like Patricia to get to where she wanted to go. And I think what's important about that is something that I've seen you write about and talk about, which is this idea of where are you going and then reverse engineering the long game. How do you map that out? And I imagine that you've applied that to your life. And so I'm super curious how you've continued to apply reinvention over time. You had the big in 2001 floor fallout, but then I imagine your curiosity about the topic has caused you to apply it. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I know you have been briefed on this aspect of my life, but one of the more recent ways that I have attempted to walk my own talk is, and I recount this in my new book, The Long Game, is that in 2016, I decided that I wanted to create a 10-year goal for myself to write a show that would make it to Broadway. And starting in 2016, I was literally starting from zero. I had no idea how to write musical theater. I had never done it before. This was not like a running start. This was very much a standing start. But I decided that you can do a lot in 10 years. There's a saying, which I wholeheartedly agree with, that we overestimate what we can accomplish in a day, but we underestimate what we can accomplish in a year. And if that is true, it is even more so that we underestimate what we can accomplish in 10 years. So I knew with a little bit of research that the average show, of course, most shows don't make it to Broadway, but if you are writing a show that does make it to Broadway, it is usually on average about a seven year process to be able to get it there. So I thought, all right, you know, 10 years is not unreasonable. So I made that my goal. Now we're having this conversation in 2023. I've got three years left. And next month, I'm going to be having a stage reading in New York City of the show that I wrote. We had a stage reading of it last year in Dallas. So it is moving forward. And God willing, I'm still looking for the 2026 deadline. I think it's conceivable. I want to hear more about the show. What's the name? I want to hear more about what it's about, too. Yeah, the show is called Absolute Zero. And I describe it as a sexy lesbian spy thriller musical. And so obviously, it's blending the personal and professional because it is a slightly fictionalized account of my life as a spy. <gasps> Just kidding. I'm an extremely gullible person, but I knew you were. I knew you were pulling me there. I knew you were pulling me there. <laughs> I wish. I was a big James Bond fan when I was a kid. So that is a heretofore unrealized dream, but I can write musicals about it. So we know. If you were a spy, would we know is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no. You know, yeah. probably not. Although I suppose that writing a spy musical is a poor way of keeping that sub rosa. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. I can't wait to see it. It's so exciting. So how are you feeling about the timeline and where you're at with it in the process? Because I love theater. I love going going to theater. I am a fan, but I am not a professional. I'm not a writer. I'm just an enjoyer. I would say a professional enjoyer. A professional enjoyer is a fantastic. I hope that's on your Twitter profile, Shoshana. That's... It's not, but it's going to be as soon as we hang up. As soon as yes. we hang up, it's going to be. Boom. <laughs> professional enjoyer of art. Is that thematically for your art, lesbian, spy, thriller, loosely autobiographical, not at all? Is that your lane? Ha. I'm not sure that I'm exclusively going to write lesbian spy musicals. <laughs> not that one couldn't. I feel like that could, you know, I you feel could, like one could. could. Take that. But yeah, I do have other things that I'm interested in. I have a couple of other shows that I'm working on that are on other topics. But yeah, Absolute Zero. I'm excited about it. I feel like artistically, it is in a really good place. It's not in its final place. But through the iteration of these readings, you really begin to refine it. And after the stage reading in Dallas, we removed a song. We added three new songs. You understand where things are strong and where things are weak. 
And so there's a lot of the musical that I feel like has really been stress tested and we feel very solid about. And now with each iteration, you just understand more about, oh, okay, this is a place where we could probably improve it or this is a place we can tweak it. Musical theater is really about revision. And in fact, if you read books or biographies about classic musical theater, there's a reason they do these so-called out-of-town tryouts in other cities before coming to Broadway. They're like rewriting it every night, like after every show in Boston or wherever they're doing it, they're constantly changing it, trying something new to get it perfect. And so the version that we see that gets immortalized on Broadway, there's been hundreds of revisions for most of these shows. So I feel like we're really making excellent progress. The show is so much stronger than it was. And I can see the difference because the tweaks that we're making now are more minor tweaks rather than like, oh, we need to get rid of this entire whatever. So that's very positive. In terms of how the process works, one of the challenges for something like Broadway is that there's not a super clear cut path for things to get to Broadway. It's not like everybody does the same thing. It's not like to be a doctor, you go to medical school. For Broadway, it's like, oh my God, there's a million different ways that you can get your pathway in. Because there's a million different pathways, it both opens up possibility and it means that nobody knows, nobody can tell you anything. And so you have to do all the things to see what breaks and what moves forward. But with a stage reading, we're going to be inviting a bunch of people, artistic directors, investors, producers, and hopefully you get someone who is interested enough to do a thing that keeps moving it forward. And basically you just need to keep getting it in front of as many eyeballs as possible until you get the attention of someone that can become a champion for the project and you get a full production either off-Broadway in New York or in a regional theater. And then that is typically what gives it the momentum necessary to be able to hopefully make the transition to Broadway. So could it be done in three years? I think that it is possible. Oh, for sure. You sound well on your way. You've said so many things that I just feel like are a metaphor for life and living anyway. First of all, different theater, different audiences in different parts of the country are going to give different responses. And so integrating that reception out of a bubble, even though Broadway has wide reach in terms of audience, it's still it's the New York theater going audience. So just getting that range of perspective and feedback, that makes so much sense to me that so many changes would come out of that. And also, wow, there's some really valuable learning in that for living and life. Revisions, so many revisions. Also, metaphor for life and living, things just evolve. And that's how we get to really understanding ourselves and not buying into inertia and staying on a certain path. Okay, doctor, lawyer, there's a few paths where it's prescribed, but most of life and careers just evolved and there is no one way. What a metaphor for life and learning. You're right. That is largely the modern economy. I remember, like a lot of people, when I was in college, when I was a junior, when I was a senior, trying to think about, all right, what kind of a career am I going to have? There's some people who really want to be doing a specific thing and then they go do it. But a lot of people just fall into the grooves that society has made. Like, oh, well, this seems doable, you know. I mean, all the stupid advice that people's ridiculous relatives give them, like, you're so good with words. You should be a lawyer. Oh, well, you make such good arguments at dinner. Okay, that's a great reason to choose your life path. Watched one episode of Law & Order. That's what being a lawyer is, right? Absolutely. So it's no wonder that once people get into something five years, 10 years, 20 years, they're like, oh, actually, I could probably adjust this a little bit and have it be a better fit. But I remember the North Stars that I had, and it was very confusing at the time because I sort of knew kind of what I wanted to do, but I had no idea how to monetize it. I just really wasn't sure the path to do it. But I knew I wanted a career that was halfway between George Stephanopoulos and Tony Robbins. And I feel like I've largely been able to figure 
figure that out, which is very gratifying. Yeah, that's like super smart, savvy, political minded policy shaping message and also super inspirational and energetic and helping people transform their lives. Yeah, I think that's well put. I feel like you're doing it. Okay, so speaking of the integration and the blend of all that, the last three years, we've been through a thing. I'm curious to know how the impact that that has had on your thinking about goal setting and reinvention. Yeah, you're right. We have been through a thing. That's true. (laughs) A A thing. A pandemic. Yeah. I wrote a piece earlier this year for Harvard Business Review called How to Make Peace with Feeling Less Ambitious. And I wrote that because in a lot of the work that I do with clients, I just kept seeing over and over again these patterns emerging. Last year, there was this cultural moment around quiet quitting. The way that I think about quiet quitting is it's basically people who are not that interested or invested in their job. And they're like, I'm going to do the bare minimum because I can. <laughs> and like, all right, God bless. But mm-hmm. what I am seeing among my clients, the people I work with actually really love what they do. It's not that they're checked out and they're like, oh, I have to do this. They love what they do, but there is a recalibration that has gone on with a lot of people. And so it's not that they want to quit. It's not that they want to leave it, but it is that they want more balance or they want more sanity or they just want more bandwidth because a problem that so many of us had, and I would include myself in this, is that pre-pandemic, the demands were often so extreme, it was hard to enjoy even things that were enjoyable because you were doing them at such a pace. It's almost like you're in a hot dog eating competition in Coney Island and it's like, oh, one and two and three hot dogs, how delicious. But then actually that's not the game. The game is that you have to eat 45 hot dogs in 10 minutes and that is no longer fun at all. I might argue it was maybe never that fun, but I am completely, (laughs) my beloved always is like, let's go to Coney Island 4th of July to see the competition. I'm like, go ahead, like go (laughs) for it. I am with you. Quiet quitting really ruffled my feathers a lot when that was coming around because one of the things that the pandemic exposed was the unsustainable sustainable, untenable pace of what we were trying to do and the demands and the idea that I do not subscribe to of work-life balance. I think of work-life balance like you're in it or you're not. It's zero sum. How I look at it is a blend. It's the approach to my whole thing. It's a blend because it doesn't matter what's on your plate as long as you put it there and that it's in alignment with what matters most to you, your drivers and values and helps gas you up to where you're going. And so for me, they called it quiet quitting, but it felt like a realignment to me. I think the word you said recalibration, people really looking at for what, for why am I doing so much to what end? My clients were feeling the same way, like this is not fitting anymore. It's about how do we show up, do a great job and do our job and have that be enough without it being about, oh, all of a sudden people are slacking, which I think got a bad rap for quiet quitting. Okay, so for you, are you feeling less ambitious or is it more just about what you're seeing with your people? Yeah, the way that I think about it, I wouldn't specifically call it less ambitious, but there's a rhyme to it in the sense that in my book, The Long Game, there's a concept that I talk about called thinking in waves. One of the mistakes that we systematically make that ambitious, successful professionals systematically make is that we keep doing the things that have gotten us praise and rewards in the past that make 
makes sense. That is not illogical. But the problem comes when we fail to observe the external context. When the situation has changed, we need to change. And if you keep doing the quote unquote right thing, the thing that has been right previously, but the world is different, then that no longer is the right thing. Where we have to get smarter, where we have to gain new wisdom is not just doing the thing, it is understanding what is the thing to do in that moment. We have to be willing to ride the waves and understand that waves can be ridden for a long time and it can be great, but we need to transition to something new. Otherwise, there will be a crash. My version of this is thinking through its life phases. It's time to focus on different things. I remember in 2017, that was the year that my book Entrepreneurial You came out, and I really got focused. I had worked very, very hard on promoting my ideas, promoting my previous books. I'd done a million podcasts, episodes that I was a guest on, all these things. That was great. That was all great for exposure. But of course, <laughs> you don't get paid for doing things like that. I had done all the optimizing I possibly could around building my platform, getting better known for my ideas. And I reached a point where I said, all right, I'm glad I did this. This is a valuable investment. Now I need to optimize for revenue, which is different. The activities that bring you revenue are not necessarily the activities that bring you exposure. They're often different. I knew that if I wanted to be successful and sustainable longer term, I needed to change the balance. That's how I came to write Entrepreneurial You, which is a book basically about creating new revenue streams in your business. I spent a couple of years researching it, interviewing people, understanding how they made money from different things, and then implementing those activities in my own business and then writing a book about it. I was like the end of one test case, trying out all of these things and then sharing the wisdom of people who had done it well. And that was really helpful and transformative because in a year, I was able to make an extra probably quarter million dollars because of changes that I had made as a result of implementing what I was learning from these people and writing about in my book. That was a change where I was like, all right, the wave needs to be different. I need to shift from a branding wave to a monetization wave. The movement here, and I think a lot of people are experiencing it, is I've gotten enough momentum. I've built up, thankfully, enough of a head of steam in my career that even though it's like a little bit of a scary feeling for most people, I feel like I can take my foot off the accelerator a little bit because there's enough internal momentum that it keeps it going at this point. So I can reallocate a little bit more of my life to other activities, other things that are enjoyable, whether it's writing musical theater or spending time with people that I care about. I have a new place in Miami. And so going down and being able to enjoy that is really satisfying. I am reallocating some of my own balance as well. It's almost like a redeployment of your ambition. It's just different stuff on your plate. It's a different blend for you. Yeah, absolutely. Needing to bring in more revenue is such a clear sign that you need to shift the wave that you're riding, that you need to think in a different wave. Any tips? Sometimes I don't think the cues are quite as strong, where it's like, I'm going to starve to death on exposure. I need to pay the bills. That's a clear sign. Sometimes people really have a hard time knowing when to shift. I'm curious to know if you have any wisdom about how to identify when it's time to surf a different wave. Yeah, my favorite metaphor, which I talk about in the long game, is Punxsutawney Phil, our friend, the groundhog. <laughs> I love it. I feel like Punxsutawney Phil is how we should all be. It is a really really good idea once a year to lift your damn head up and look around like, what is the weather like? What is the weather going to be like here? It's so valuable because if the weather is unchanged, fine, go back underground, keep burrowing, keep doing the thing. That's fine. But if the weather is different, meaning in our case, are the external circumstances different? Have market conditions changed? Have your competitors changed? Is there a new development? That's something that we need to keep in mind. If you are a copywriter, for instance, when you lifted your head up this February, hopefully you noticed that ChatGPT is a thing and that your business model is probably going to change really 
really fast, really soon. It's not to say your business is going to go away overnight. It probably isn't. But is it conceivable that your entire business could go away in five years? Yes, I think it actually is. It would be a really good idea to start thinking about alternative things that you could offer or branch into that would enable you to begin to solve for the problem so that you do not find yourself obsolete. Brilliant example. I'm sure you've played around with ChatGPT and it is amazing the impact it can have on words, <laughs> your words and tasks and everything. It's incredible and scary, daunting. And it's only going to continue to get better. Kathy Wood, who's an investment professional who makes her living focused on innovation and cutting edge trends, she was speaking recently and saying basically that AI language model things like ChatGPT in the next year are going to get three times better than they already are this year. The key is that we're on the cusp of exponential growth. And in five years, they are going to get 4,000x better. So you have a little time, but you don't have that much time. It really is important to start thinking through implications. For your career, how to be an early adopter, how to not fight it, how to use it for good, all the things. There's so much to consider. That's such a great example of the importance of picking up your head, checking the weather, seeing what's changing for you, for your industry, and then use that as cues. I love that answer so much, Dory. It's such a helpful way to help people shift. Puxatani Phil. Yeah, he's my homeboy. I know a lot of people who curse that groundhog when it sees its shadow, but a whole new light, a whole new life for me. Phil's a rationalist. Phil's taking the pulse. He says, all right, I don't make the weather, man. I'm just checking out the weather. Yeah. Just the messenger, just giving you the information. That's right. I love that. Miami, longtime New Yorker, and now a place in Miami doing that two-city life. How's that going? It's great. Thank you. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly in Miami, but I do still have my place in New York, and I am enjoying the mix. Having two places is a layer of complexity that you have to navigate. I've come to understand, like, I thought for a long time, snowbird is this pejorative thing. Essentially, people are, you know, oh, it's like, you're old. But I came to understand something, which is there's a reason why older people do it. And it's not some weakness that they're old and like, no, they can't take the cold because they're old. It's that they either don't have children or their children are grown. And so they can do it. That's why I just realized, oh, it's not some stigmatized bad thing. It actually is the thing that most rational people would do if they were not constrained by children's school schedules. My children have fur and can go on airplanes. Therefore, I am taking them out of their school and I'm not going to get in trouble for it. It's good. I'm homeschooling them. So we're able to do it. And it's been really fantastic. I love that because that's really the heart of what we're talking about, which is how do you design a life that works for you and makes sense and fits with what you want and is not about inertia and going along doing it a certain way because you have you really made a choice about what was going to feel good and make sense for you. Then you have a little bit of everything. Yeah, exactly. It's really quite nice. Having small animals that can travel with you is a dream. We have had that in our life, too, and it's great. But I also am an empty nester. And that mindset, I will tell you, you just hit on something. What an impact having that person leaving and living their own life can have on you thinking what's possible. So I love that you are actually saying not everyone has to wait for that or you can figure out different ways. Yeah, absolutely. How are you leveraging your newfound freedom, Shoshana, besides starting a podcast? <laughs> we, the podcast is one of them and it does, it chips away at your freedom. Let me tell you, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of fun. I love getting to talk to cool people like you. And we just did a live work month in Buenos Aires. Look at you. See, you, you went even further south. We did. And honestly, the day we came back in January, Dory, we were like, it was summer. Of course, it's the opposite side of the world. And we're like, what are we doing? Why are we going back? So it brought up 
all the things that you're talking about, there are reasons why people make choices and then those reasons evolve and shift. And so are we going to evolve and shift in response to them? That's the question. That's the Puxatani Phil. I'm going to steal that from you. But we really were like, we don't actually have to go back. Why are we? And then we did have some stuff to handle. So we did. But it really got us thinking like, oh, this is replicable and possible. And having a place in Miami is a way to do it. But going to Buenos Aires or elsewhere, another way. And it's super fun. Dory, thank you for being on the show. Where can people find you, follow you, connect with you, buy your book? Yeah, thank you so much, Shoshana. For folks who are interested in learning more about my work and especially my newest book, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, you can download a free self-assessment, a free strategic thinking self-assessment at doryclark.com slash the long game. And for more general stuff, I have more than 800 articles that I have written over the past decade for places like Harvard Business Review and Forbes, et cetera, at my website, doryclark.com. And talks galore, all pointed to on your website, amazing courses. Thank you so much for being here, Dory. Really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening. This has been your new life blend. I'm Shoshana Hecht, once again, reminding you as ever to be gentle with yourself. <laughs>